It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Friday, November 20th, 2009. December will be here before you know it. Friday light edition today, warning you ahead of time, a little more academic, focusing in on a singular topic. Thank you for tuning in. I am Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of goofy claims about God, and, well, that's what they are. They're goofy claims. Anybody can make a goofy claim about God. Anybody. In fact, we all are prone to do that. Uh, the thing is, is that, um, well, how many of you have actually met the guy? How many of you met God? Um, <laughs> personally, I, I have not had a face-to-face meeting with uh, with our Creator, and uh, can't say that from personal experience that I know much about him in, in, in that regard. But I know a lot about God. I know what he's like, what his character is all about, the things that he's uh, asked of me, as well as the things that he's done for me. You're thinking, well, how do you know so much about what God has done and said in his character and all that kind of stuff? Well, because he's revealed that. It's not a mystery. It's not hidden. It's not Hidden knowledge somewhere off deep in a dark cavern where you have to genuflect three times at the exact precise moment and then cross yourself and then and then waddle uh, ten feet and then uh, light a candle and and then oh, secret knowledge is revealed to you. no it, it's <clears throat> go to any bookstore buy something called the Bible read it it's true. And if what you think about God or what you claim about God contradicts what's in the Bible, that falls into the category of goofy claim about God. <laughs> yeah, I, we're not really interested in your opinions here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, and uh, no, serious, uh, God's already told us what he's all about. And if you have an opinion about him that's contrary to what his word reveals, you ain't helping nobody out, including yourself. And you need to repent of your goofy claims. Just... One of those things we point out here at a regular basis on Fighting for the Faith. Well, today is a Friday light edition of Fighting for the Faith. That means uh, that the show is generally a little bit shorter, and we focus in on a singular topic. Today's topic is the last in our series of uh, lectures pre- uh, presented by Kim Riddlebarger, uh, co-host of the White Horse Inn and pastor of Christ Reformed Lutheran Church in Anaheim, California. And this is his last lecture that we're going to play on the new perspectives on Paul. And this is uh, an evaluation of the new perspectives. This is the critique portion of it, part two. This is the critique. We did three, uh, we played three lectures where uh, the new perspectives were laid out as far as what it is they teach, what, how, you know, the claims that they're making. And, the, and then last week's edition and this week's edition of Fighting for the Faith uh, work on the critique part of it, biblically analyzing it and giving uh, data that uh, really scrutinizes it in light of God's word to see if the new perspectives are true or, well, false. 
And uh, last week we got the first dose of that, and today we're going to uh, get the last dose, so to speak, of the uh, new perspectives and uh, what's wrong with it. Also, if you are a member of the Pirate Christian Radio Fighting for the Faith crew, uh, we have a good lecture, uh, uh, kind of panel discussion put on at, um, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Louisville, California, headed by Al Moeller. And a group of the uh, professors and uh, the you know the the teaching uh, faculty there at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on the um, on the new perspectives. It's a video and it is available at the uh, uh, at the Pirate Christian Cove. So if you are a member of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, uh, head on over to the Cove and take a look at that uh, video. It uh, again provides even more ammunition. And uh, these little uh, these little exercises uh, allow us to take a look more in depth to make sure that uh, we're correctly handling God's word. It's never a bad thing when somebody challenges what we're doing, uh, with the this caveat that uh, he who's wrong needs to repent. That's uh, that's kind of the uh, the big deal. I don't know if uh, N.T. Wright will repent. He's uh, seems to be very much in love with his new perspective. And, uh, well, anyway, that's a whole nother story. So without any further ado, uh, for our Friday Light Edition, here is the final lecture that we're going to be playing on the new perspectives on Paul. Here is Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. Perspectives on Paul. And we come to the um, final bit of, uh, of response here. And I'd like to begin tonight by basically... Uh, doing a once-over-lightly review of the lecture last week because some of the uh, points tonight build on the ground we covered last time. And then um, I'll offer a number of final conclusions uh, at the end of our lecture and allow for some questions. Now, as I concluded last time, I I made the following points, uh, both pro and con, about uh, things held in common by advocates of the New Perspectives on Paul And uh, tonight we will move into more specific things. So last time we looked at big picture items, and now we'll move to more specific uh, exegetical matters. Recall that uh, we came to the conclusion that, at best, new perspective really does challenge a number of long-held assumptions, and I think that's always a good thing. Uh, Again, I think one of the dangers and one of the weaknesses in our own tradition is that we tend to be... um, some have called us ossified, you know, turned to, turned to, to uh, stone. I wouldn't qu- quite put it that way. But there is in the Reformed tradition kind of a traditionalist bent, a conservative bent, that is pretty well satisfied with the, well, we've always believed that answer, or we've always done it that way answer. And so I always think a good poke in the ribs is a good thing. And I think a uh, new perspective has, has been helpful in that it's forced us to go back and look at some of our confessions, look at some of our divines, look at some of our formulations again in light of the challenges raised. And, and the good news is when we do that, I think we'll see the wisdom of our fathers in the faith, and I think we'll discover that they did a better job interpreting Paul than some of the contemporary uh, writers have done. second thing we concluded was that New Perspective uh, has certainly enhanced our understanding of Second Temple Judaism, um, which is a good thing. And uh, they do a fair bit of uh, enhancement of our understanding of Paul by forcing us to look at the Jew-Gentile problem in the letters of Paul. Um, That is the backdrop, certainly for Paul's uh, epistle to the Galatians. It's certainly in view to the church in Rome. It appears uh, again in 
the Philippian letter. It, there are a number of places where these issues arise in Paul, and this helps us get a grasp on some of the related issues uh, in Second Temple Judaism and, and some of the specifics of that particular form of Judaism that Paul is dealing with in the New Testament. Now, but I think we have been forced to say that it's clear that new perspective doesn't enhance our understanding of Paul. It clouds it, perhaps at worst even distorts it. And as we'll see uh, tonight, we look at covenant and imputation, things like the meaning and purpose of the cross, justification, righteousness, good works. All of that, I think we're going to see new perspective fall very far short of um, a cohesive and coherent reading of Paul. And so... Again, I come down to this point I made last time that at the end of the day, kind of ironically, New Perspective is really a warmed-over Pelagianism. It's a form of theological liberalism without the animosity that the German critics especially had toward uh, the miraculous and toward um, the supernatural element in the New Testament. So it's an improvement certainly over tubing, and it's an improvement certainly over the German critics This is the softer liberalism of uh, British Bible scholarship, but it is, in many ways, uh, warmed over old liberalism. And I say that um, knowing that New Perspective fans will take great umbrage at that. But I'm going to try and prove my point here as we go along. Now, despite the animus that New Perspective writers have toward Luther and the confessional Protestant churches, the great irony in all of this is at the end of the day, we're going to see that Luther made much more sense out of Paul than the New Perspective does. And I jokingly quote the words of Stephen Westerholm when Westerholm said that, you know, do we seriously believe that Luther didn't understand the letters of Paul and that if someone actually takes up the vocation of the New Testament studies and thinks Luther didn't have something to offer us in terms of an insight into Paul, well, maybe that student ought to take up a career in metallurgy. And I think uh, Westrom's point really stands. Uh, Luther gets Paul right at many, many points. And the Reformed and Lutheran traditions that grow out of Luther's fundamental interpretation of Paul, I think, stand. I think the criticism raised against them withstands the criticism of a new perspective. And I think at the end of the day, the way in which the classical Reformed tradition has read the letters of Paul makes more sense of those letters than the perspective does. Now, the specific... Uh, points of default that that are held by New Perspective writers generally is. um, First one being the misrepresentation of Luther and the traditional interpretation of Paul. We've seen that this is largely mediated through the lens of Bultmann as opposed to looking at Luther himself and Reformation exegesis. Bultmann's the boogeyman here. And so when you hear these men being critical of the Lutheran reading of Paul, they're being critical of Boltmann, and a lot of what they say about Boltmann needs to be said. But I really, as we have seen throughout, I'm taken aback by the ignorance on the part of some of these guys of the classical Protestant exegesis. It would be beneficial for some of these guys just to read John Owen, for example, or to look at uh, someone like Francis Turretin. Orvitius, some of these classical writers that have dealt with this very same issue as New Perspective writers raise, and yet I think do a much more satisfactory job uh, of dealing with them. We've seen that New Perspective can't fully explain uh, the works and merit emphasis in Second Temple Judaism. Um, that's uh, part of the problem there that... that uh, you know, while Sanders has correctly shown us that there is a, a emphasis on covenant and an emphasis on grace 
In those same writings, there appear frequently references to merit, references to salvation as reward, and new perspective writers are so far over in the pendulum on the covenantal nomism side of this being a gracious relationship, they have a very difficult time explaining merit language, reward language, which is also there in the literature. There isn't a, a, a coherent theology of Second Temple Judaism. As we saw the quote from Rabbi Akbar, you have the, this notion that it's all by grace and it's all by works. Well, thank you. That's not very helpful. Now, Dunn and Wright's understanding of works of the law we saw is contrived at best. You can't explain the obvious thrust of Paul's argument and argue that Paul is speaking of status only, not works or action, as we saw as self-evidently wrong on its face. There are a number of passages that, that say just the opposite. And at the end of the day, New Perspective's desire to flatten out the distinctions between Judaism and early Christianity really misses the whole point of the dispute we find in the pages of the New Testament between Jews and Gentiles. There's a huge difference of opinion here. It isn't as though we have this kind of continuum with Judaism on one side and Christianity on the other side, and they're both kind of true, kind of right, from what perspective you're, you're looking at. If you're a Jew, then you need to realize that Gentiles are part of the people of God, too. And if you're a Gentile, you need to realize that uh, Jews, once they drop their ethnic badge distinction, have invited you into the same basic common faith. And this comes from this post-World War II uh, ecumenism, this desire, and this, and indeed, you know, post-Holocaust, it's very difficult for Protestants to do theology and to speak of the tragedy in which a Jew may not be saved. That's a difficult thing to do. And so, as we've seen, the agenda in New Perspective, is to, throughout New Perspective, is to, is to deal with that. And by flattening out these distinctions, um, you end up losing some of the really key points in the New Testament. And as we'll see then, NPP really does distort a number of these things rather than providing us any help. So that gets us up to our final lecture tonight. The material uh, from here on will be um, a little bit more specific in terms of dealing with the specifics now. We've moved from the broad to more specific points. So let's tackle covenant and imputation the meaning of the cross, justification, and good works. Now, as for covenant, well, it's very common for New Perspective writers to speak simply of covenant, not covenants. And that is a very significant point. Uh, this is a, an ongoing debate in biblical studies. I would refer all of you to Mike Horton's two books, God of Promise, where Mike uh, basically argues for uh, a covenant of works, a uh, works-based covenant uh, formulary throughout the New Testament, uh, throughout both Testaments, along with a grace-based covenant, also in both Old and New Testaments, along with his book Covenant and Salvation, where he deals specifically with uh, the way in which New Perspective writers flatten these things out. So you end up with the old distinction in law and gospel collapsed into one another, with no longer any distinction between law and gospel. And you end up with covenant of works, covenants of works, let me put it that way, in which there is a blessing curse attached to that specific covenant, wherein the people of God swear the covenant oath and are expected to be, re and will be rewarded on the basis of performance. And covenants of grace, wherein God graciously gives what he demands. Those two things are simply collapsed into one another, spoken of as covenant, leaving what 
Sanders has given us this very tenuous relationship between promise and obligation, between grace and works. The New Perspective writers want to see both of those elements in the same generic covenant. Or as the classic Reformed tradition has said, no, 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 no. There are two kinds of covenants. There's a grace-based covenant. There's a works-based covenant. And unlike our Lutheran friends, we've subsumed the very important and very real distinction between law and gospel. Uh, we subsumed that discussion under an overarching uh, grid of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And so when you flatten those things out and speak just of covenant, you have no way to differentiate within covenant gracious promises and moral obligation. And that's exactly what Dunn and Sanders and Wright have been struggling with and have made no sense of. Now, when Sanders develops his idea of covenant in light of the covenantal nomism of Second Temple Judaism, wherein he says grace precedes obligation, Ironically, Sanders' position comes just remarkably close to the medieval gnomism, which Luther had been trained um, as an Augustinian friar. And so Sanders gets this wrong, as we have seen, Stendhal certainly did. Sanders gets it wrong when he describes Luther as somebody responding to Pelagianism. And the straw man argument from Stendhal and Sanders and Dunn is that Luther, fighting against Pelagianism, read that back into Second Temple Judaism and argued that Judaism is a religion of works. Fact of the matter is, Luther was responding to semi-Pelagianism. And so Sanders finds grace in the covenantal gnomism of Second Temple Judaism. He thinks Luther has misunderstood Judaism because Luther thought Judaism was Pelagian. And so all of that leads with a number of these men completely misrepresenting Luther's position. And you saw that in Carl Truman's essay, you know, a man more sinned against than sinning. I think that essay should be read by, I know Dunn has read it and responded to it, but the response uh, is really uh, a non-secular. Doesn't, he doesn't really respond. Now, Sanders correctly identifies elements of both grace and obligation in Second Temple Judaism. Yes, they're there. Clearly, they are there. And if Sanders then distinguished between a works principle, the Sinaitic covenant, and a grace principle, the prior covenant God had made with Abraham, as Paul does in a passage that jumps to mind, Galatians chapter 4, where Paul speaks of the two women, he speaks of the two mountains, he speaks of the two covenants. If you made a distinction between a works-based covenant at Sinai, and a grace-based covenant made with Abraham, if you make the distinction between those two covenants, you now can make much better sense of the Jewish sources, and more importantly, you now can make sense of the Apostle Paul, because Paul very clearly keeps a grace principle distinct from a works principle. That's why throughout his letters, Paul contrasts grace with works, law with gospel. Now, that's the major issue. It's not about whether or not Second Temple Judaism was Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. Who cares? It has to do with the fact that in the text, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a sharp distinction between works versus grace, law versus gospel. Right on. This is exactly the big 
issue. Let's see. Uh, he'll later get into some uh, some more texts, and uh, we'll see how this all plays out. Let's continue. You collapse all those together and say Paul is reacting against covenantal nomism, Sanders, or Paul is uh, basically a covenantal nomist himself, done and right. You end up with a generic covenant with obligations and grace and promises and no way to distinguish those two and no way to explain how they work. So let me sh- just, just go flash back to T. Wright for a second. Wright, trying to explain a grace-based principle and a works-based principle, says initial justification is on the basis of faith when a final justification is on the basis of whole life lived. We've got these two principles like thrown into a blender, and out comes what one of our friends calls gospel. Grace and works have been just mixed together, destroying the very distinction that Paul labors so hard to establish. Now, since Paul is not responding to the error of covenantal gnomism, I would argue, um, Paul is... Paul is it is responding, rather, to the era of covenantal nomism. We've got a nod in there by mistake. We can't find in his epistles anything like Sanders' theory about covenantal nomism. You just don't see this, um, where you have this participationist idea um, and, and justification is kind of this transformationalist idea. We have a declaration by Paul, a grace principle. We have a works principle in Paul as well. But we, we, Sanders forcing this grid on Paul doesn't make much sense. Paul is correcting the Jewish tendency to collapse everything into a single covenant read historically. Um, if you're a first century Jew, you have the covenant with Abraham based on God's promise. Then you have the covenant of Moses. And instead of these being two parallel covenants or the Mosaic covenant overlaid on Abraham, you have Abraham the first part, Moses the second part. Now, why is it in Galatia that when Paul runs into the Judaizers, the Judaizers were arguing that a sign of the covenant of grace had to be present in order for somebody to receive justification merit? Because... It were as though you'd looked at the Old Testament and Abraham and then put on your Moses glasses and you saw the covenant of promise now read through Moses. So what was intended to be a sign of the covenant of grace, circumcision, now erroneously became something that we must do or not do to receive blessing or curse. And therefore, justification could only come on the basis of faith plus circumcision. The works principle and the grace principle blended together so you have no clear distinction between the law and the gospel, no clear distinction between grace and works. That's the problem. That's what Paul is refuting. And so you, you end up then having Jews see promise as obligation because they're reading Abraham through the lens of Moses. Moses came after Abraham historically, right? So you would think... That Moses is telling us what Abraham means. And as Mike points out, as Horton points out in Covenant and Salvation, as he does in God of Promise, a number of Jewish scholars are now starting to say, you know, there are, there are two different covenants here. And we kind of need to keep them distinct. And once you grant that distinction, 
between covenants of promise and covenants of obligation, between things like royal grants and suzerainty treaties, once you start to make these distinctions, all of a sudden it's clear that the fundamental principle in the Mosaic economy is blessing-curse, while the fundamental principle in the covenant God made to Abraham is God's favor, God's gift. And so these things have been collapsed together and blurred, so you end up with, with no intelligible distinction. Now, while Sanders is correct in identifying the fact that Paul is concerned in his polemics with demonstrating that Judaism errs by seeking righteousness apart from Christ, Sanders misses the point that for Paul, it's Christ who is that righteousness. Yes, the concern was that the Jews were seeking righteousness apart from Christ. That's at least what Sanders says Paul's. But what Sanders misses is that for Paul, it's not transformation into righteousness. It's not faith that renders us as righteousness, but it's Christ who is our righteousness. That's Paul's whole point. That's Paul's argument in a number of passages, as we will see. Now, what Sanders fails to see, then, is that the nomistic principle of justification, which is classical semi-Pelagianism, you've heard this motto, God gives his grace to those who do what lies within them. Um, you can hear that principle, by the way, in so many words in almost every evangelical pulpit in the land. God has done his part. Now it's up to you to do your part. It's the classic semi-Pelagian principle. Sanders sees this and he identifies then Second Temple Judaism as exactly the thing both the Reformers and Paul were arguing against. Luther gets it right. Luther's saying, no, no, we have to distinguish this works principle from this grace principle. We call them long gospel. The reform came along later and said, Luther got the distinction right, but it makes better sense if we put it under the headings of covenants of works and covenants of grace. Now, Dunn and Wright see this a bit differently because they're trying to reconcile Paul with Second Temple Judaism. They see Paul as somebody who is a covenantal nomist. And that means that covenant is discussed in terms of the people of God, ecclesiology, and not in terms of individual salvation, which is soteriology. But as Horton points out, in covenant and salvation, on the new perspective definitions, the gospel excludes the very idea of personal salvation. Now, I, for one, will grant... For example, when Sanders and Wright, I, I don't think of a place in Dunn off the top of my head, but I think of places both in Sanders and Wright, where the foil here isn't Luther or Calvin or the Reformed tradition. The foil here is the fundamentalist preacher they've seen on television that talks about getting saved. And getting saved in isolation as a decision, a crisis experience, that's kind of their, their target here. In the New Testament, people don't get saved in isolation. Um, this, this is where the Reformed and Lutherans and the Evangelicals just are different on this. The Reformation, on the one hand, says when an individual sinner comes to faith in Christ, he does so in the context of the ecclesia. He becomes a member upon his faith in Christ. He becomes a member in the body of Christ and therefore a member of the church. Whereas on the Evangelical side of things, somebody can walk on and pray a prayer be saved and never once be part of a church. I'll grant that criticism in, in Sanders and Wright. Their criticism of that is valid. I agree. But Luther and Calvin would have agreed on that as well. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, they do so 
in the context of a believing community. They become part of the people of God. That's always been standard Reformation teaching. So again, there's a bit of a, a, bit of a straw man argument raised here. Now, Horton points out that this idea of just excluding personal salvation is the bitter fruit of collapsing the National Covenant, Sinai, which was not concerned with individual salvation, in the prior covenant with Abraham, which was primarily concerned with individual salvation. This is, again, the consequence of collapsing grace and works together, law and gospel together, covenant of works and covenants of grace together. Because in the Sinaitic Covenant, God made a covenant with Israel. And Israel as a nation was blessed or cursed based upon the nation's obedience to the commandments of God. We've gone through this again and again in our Sunday morning sermon series. You could be a Jew at the time of Joshua. You could have been a Jew there in that valley um, near Shechem where the entire nation assembles, spreads up the side of two mountains, and they read the blessings and the curses to each other, and the entire nation is worshiping Yahweh. Great national blessing. That is the high water market. You could have been there that day, received all those national blessings, and in your heart say, I'm pretty good. And be lost eternally. Conversely, you could live during the days of the judges, which we're looking at now, where everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And when the Midianites, as we'll see next Sunday, had basically wiped Israel out for seven years and had camped everywhere and destroyed everything, you could have lost everything you owned and trusted God. And when you died, received your eternal inheritance, even though you lived at a time of national consequence. The nation was under blessing and curses. That's Horton's point here. There is, in the Mosaic Covenant... National blessing, national curse. But in the Abrahamic covenant, there is personal, individual salvation. I will be your God. You will be my people. So, by collapsing those two things together, you lose any way to keep those things distinct. And that's why there's so much confusion here in New Perspective. All right, we're going to pause there. So, yes, you are saved individually, uh, despite what the uh, New Perspectives guys have uh, erred regarding. All right, we are up on our first break. We have to pay some bills here. And uh need to remind you all, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can... Um, well, it has to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there again, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. (laughs) 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant. But that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing the Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, the Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of the Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. resurrection was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Need to warn you, listening to this program could cause your biblical IQ to shoot through the roof. And you could be accused of being a theological nerd or a divisive doctrinaire. <laughs> Just what some of the things that happen to poor people listening to this, uh, this program. They don't know what hits them. They've been, they become piratized. That's a term I've made up. You know, because, you know, Pirate Christian Radio. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and your gifts and financial support make this program possible for you as well as other people. And right now, we're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Join Our Crew button. And it's a mere $6.95 a month. I mean, just give you some perspective. We're talking two and a half gallons of gas a month. That's it. I mean, it, it's far less than a gym membership. I mean, what's the average gym membership? Like $30 a month? Yeah, well, see. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. It's, it's highly affordable. 
And although it's only $6.95 to you, it, it means the world to us so that we can continue to pay our bills and continue to proclaim Christ and him crucified, sound biblical doctrine, Christ-centered theology and doctrine uh, to you as well as to the world. And so uh, would you partner with us with the, and, and share a portion of the, uh, of, the, of the gifts that God has given you financially with Fighting for the Faith so we can continue to do what we do. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. And, of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount, you are always welcome to do that. And you click do that by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. Six zero three eight. We are in the middle of listening to uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger talking about the uh, new perspectives on Paul. This is the second part of his critique of the new perspectives, and uh, we continue with his lecture. Now, when we turn to the subject of imputation, this is where new perspective seriously defaults at a, at a number of points. Uh, Paul very clearly teaches the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to humanity. The famous passage in Romans 5, 12 through 19, we don't have time to go, again, time-wise, we just don't have time to go through some of the exegetical arguments here. I've done this in other places at other times. Uh, you, can, you can track it down. I'd be happy to give you the references. Um, clearly, in Romans 5, 12 through 19, Paul speaks of the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous, the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made or declared sinners. So there is, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, the principle of federal headship taught. Adam is the biological and the federal head of the human race. His guilt is imputed or credited to all of his descendants, and Christ's obedience is credited to all who believe. Our sin, we're told, is imputed to Christ in Romans chapter 3 and following. And we're told explicitly in Philippians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Those are huge for Lutheran and Reformed Orthodoxy. That is the foundation of the Reformation faith. Those three imputations basically define the Protestant Reformation. By denying all three of these imputations and denying the validity of the very concept of imputation, New Perspective ends up with no doctrine of original guilt, you never do get a sense in the New Perspective writings as to what Jesus is doing. There's no real way to explain the purpose of the cross. Jesus is, is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. And Jew and Gentile have to reckon with that. But there's really not a lot made of what he did as Messiah. There's kind of an identity of his person which, which changes everything. And yes, his death is important, but we're not really... Eh, they're, they're metaphors that the Bible writers use, but... We can't make too much out. You get that kind of a, a language in New Perspective writers. And so you end up with real, no real way to explain the purpose of the cross. The best we have is N.T. Wright's idea of, of Christus Victor, that, that Christ's death ensures his victory over the principalities and powers. Uh, New Perspective sees no need for Christ's righteousness to be, be imputed to believers. And so you end up then with Kind of a, a, again, I use the language of flattened out. Everything is flattened out to be a racial divide between Jew and Gentile with very little said about God being mad at us because of our sin and nothing being said that the Holy God is offended by our sinfulness and he sent Christ to deal with that. That's just kind of not there. If the gospel is about anything, it is about how God saves sinners. That's the whole idea of the grace principle. 
God not saving sinners in isolation from other sinners, granted, but God saving individuals and saving them in an aggregate called the ecclesia of the church. And it's the failure to acknowledge all three of these points that upsets the careful balance set out in Paul. Just, I wish we could have time to just quickly go through Romans 1 through 5 and the climax of that section in 5, 12 to 21 that becomes kind of a hinge for what goes on in 6, 7, and 8. And look at the Reformed interpretation of Paul, which is at that point very similar to the Lutheran interpretation of Paul. And that's why, brothers and sisters, there is no way to synthesize new perspective with confessional Reformed or Lutheran theology. And so when some of our guys find things they like and write about covenant or righteousness language or the stress on ecclesia and the sacraments and so on, you're reading those through a fundamentally different lens than the Reformation's lens of the three imputations. The Reformation deals with ecclesia. We do not believe that God uh, justifies individual sinners without regard to the ecclesia. Sinners are brought into the body of Christ. We think baptism does something. All of those things are true. We, we've thought about this. But you can't synthesize new perspective with confessional reform theology. As we saw in the dialogue between Dunn and Wright, they were pretty convinced that they couldn't do it either. Now, it's clear from the running argument in Romans 1 through 5 that Paul argues from plight, which is universal human guilt, both Jew and Gentile, to solution. That's opposite to our new perspective, friends. Look at Romans 3.20. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And then in Romans 3.21 and follow, Paul then explains what God did in Christ to save us from the guilt of our sin, Jew and Gentile. And so when Sanders says that Paul argues from solution of plight, Christ has come, now how do he reconcile Jew and Gentile? Sanders can't explain at all Paul's emphasis upon sin stemming from our solidarity in Adam. They can't explain sin's universal sway over Jew and Gentile. And so Dunn is flat out wrong when he sees sin as mere transgression. Transgression against whom and transgression against what? He really never says. And he downplays guilt. And he downplays or rejects altogether our solidarity with Adam. Well, Wright sees, as he calls it, the Adam story in light of Israel's failure to do what the second Adam has done. Now, I think Wright is extremely helpful talking about Israel as being the son of God and Israel failing just as Adam had failed. So this requires the second Adam to do what both the first Adam and Israel failed to do. I think Wright's really insightful on that kind of stuff. But he doesn't go far enough. And he doesn't make a distinction between somebody fulfilling righteousness, Christ, so that the children of Abraham can be justified on the basis of faith. He collapses all those things together and makes no distinction between a works principle and a grace principle. And that's the problem. And so that explains why new perspective authors have to see justification in terms of a believer's grace-enabled obedience. Now, at the end of the day, when it comes right down to it, these guys leave us with a pretty crass Pelagianism. I'll grant maybe 
uh, uh, very reluctantly, under, under threat, semi-Pelagianism. But these categories are old. They've been around a long time. And at the end of the day, after all of this, we're right back to some medieval distinctions. God gives his grace to those who do what lies within them. There's not a lot different in that from where new perspective leaves us. And so when Wright says the initial justifications by faith and final vindications on the basis of a whole life lived, how is that not on the road to Pelagianism? And so in this, our new perspective friends erroneously identify Paul's view as that of Second Temple Judaism. And they can't see that Paul is writing to refute certain forms of covenantal nomism, semi-Pelagism, then oppressing Galatia. Now, I have yet to be satisfied with a new perspective explanation about the Galatian heresy. Why is Paul so angry? Is he that angry because Jews were excluding Gentiles from the church? Paul uses anathema. This is a different gospel. Let them be accursed, you stupid Galatians. And then Paul goes so far as to say, toward the end of that epistle, if you want to start with circumcision, go the whole way. I mean, the apostle's anger is just, is he just angry because this is a fight about making Gentiles keep kosher? It just misses the, the fact that this is about the gospel. This is about how Jew and Gentile are reconciled to a holy God. That's just not in the new perspective understanding. And so especially then in a letter like Galatia, you, know, you may have done very, very creatively dealing with some of the individual passages, but losing completely the sense of the whole epistle. Now, as far as the cross goes, well, new perspective authors struggle mightily to provide a coherent explanation of Jesus' death. Sanders sees the cross as something that breaks the power of sin. Okay, what does that mean? Tell me, what does that mean? It's not necessarily connected with the believer's pardon because that's this justification, this transformist, participationist idea where now we're somehow united with Christ and transformed by that. It's in some vague way tied to what Sanders calls our participation in Christ through faith. Dunn sees Paul as using a number of metaphors when speaking of the cross, but he's got no way to explain what the cross actually does. The closest Dunn comes to a, a doctrine of the atonement is when he speaks of the cross as a complete break with the power of sin. But again, then why does Paul use all the metaphors? I, I, it just doesn't fit. Why does Paul go to so much trouble to speak of the cross as redemption, as reconciliation, as propitiation, as you know, the language of the marketplace, buying slaves off the open market, all those kinds of things. Are you, how does that fit with the idea of the cross being a fundamental break with sin? You, you are, the New Perspective writers are correct to say the cross changes the course of redemptive history. That, that's, yes, it does do that. But it does a whole lot more than that. And that's where we just don't get any clarity uh, from New Perspective writers. Wright acknowledges that Christ's death atones for sin. 
and that it is a propitiation. His, his section on his commentary on Romans, he, he acknowledges this. Uh, he even speaks of the forensic language involved. But in his scheme, the cross deals with sin, not in terms of our guilt, but as a power that enslaves the nations. And so, you know, it's no surprise then that the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. The cross liberates us from the principalities and powers. It is not accidental that Wright's ministry has now moved into a newer phase, a phase dealing now with ethics. That should come as no surprise. This has been the pattern of Protestant liberalism for generations. Their concern with how we get along with each other and with the church's witness in the world. And their concern with things like the principalities and powers and rights now identifying the principalities and powers in a number of his public addresses. And those principalities and powers are, at least one of them is the United States and its imperialistic foreign policy. Now, I think there's a place to criticize the United States foreign policy. I'm not a, in principle opposed to that. I just think it's very hard to say that's what Paul's getting at when he's talking about principalities and powers. And so, yes, the death of Jesus affects a change in lordship. The believers transferred from the realm of sin to the realm of covenantal obedience as part of the people of God. And it's that language of, of covenant faithfulness, covenant obedience, uh, that gets very, very slippery and very uh, dangerous here. Now, two key passages where we see a gross deficiency in new perspective, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 3.24-26. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, and we could go through the exegesis of this, and again, we don't have, we don't have the time, so I'm just going to read the passages, and uh, we've handled these passages elsewhere. And I would refer you, by the way, to the excellent treatment of these in all the, the books we've recommended uh, Piper does a good job with this. Venom especially does a good job with it. All these have been argued in, in our required reading. So Paul says here, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Sanders says this is participant patientist language. We're united with Christ. He's very vague about what that means. Dunn says this verse is speaking in terms of sacrifice. Um it's one of the few places that Paul doesn't speak of sacrifice, ironically. Acknowledging that the double metaphors are present, sin and righteousness. And N.T. Wright, amazingly, in an essay written a number of years ago in a, in a volume on the uh, Pauline epistles, there's kind of a scholarly series of essays on Romans and the Corinthian correspondence and Galatians and so on. In one of those volumes, Wright has an essay called On Becoming the Righteousness of God, where he exegetes, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is referring solely to the, the responsibilities of Christian ministers. When Paul speaks of us being the righteousness of God, he's talking about our minister's obligation to be ambassadors for Christ. This is something to do with salvation, Wright says. And you look at that and you think, wait a minute. Him to be sin who knew no sin? That we might become the righteousness of God? The whole point of this declaration here is, this is what ministers are supposed to say when they announce the word of reconciliation. This isn't the job description, this is the message. So all of these arguments at the end of the day are nothing but evasions from what Paul is setting forth here. The death of Christ does something. 
It saves sinners from the guilt of their sin, as well as breaking sin's power over the individual. Okay, there is a fundamentalist reductionist principle that tends to reduce the cross strictly to an individual person's personal sins and guilt. We agree with that. That's a problem. The cross does more than that. But it doesn't do any less than that. And, and new perspective just kind of disses that away as though, hey, this isn't about individual salvation. This is about who's in the church. And so in Romans 3, 24 to 26, Paul writes, and you can just see the very careful use of language here. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received through faith. In other words, there are certain things Christ did for us that we receive through faith. This was to show God's righteousness, which Wright says shows us that the judge is righteous. It has nothing to do with how sinners become righteous. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here we're told that God justifies sinners through redemption that's in Christ, through propitiation by his blood received in faith. And so I'm sorry, but new perspective writers just can't deal with the thrust of the passage. Justification comes through Christ's redemption, not through covenant faithfulness. It's just not here. Through faith. This means believers are delivered from God's wrath because Christ has provided a propitiation, a turning aside of God's wrath. Um, and just so all of you know that this... A huge debate now has come up uh, again in Protestant circles. Uh, first time I heard it was from Ray Anderson, who is a professor at Fuller of Classic Bargain, who's also a minister in the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, Ray Anderson was arguing that we don't want to talk about God punishing Jesus because that is a metaphor that is abusive. And now we hear Bishop Spong and a whole bunch of others a lot of emergent church guys, speaking of if you use father punishing son language, you're turning the cross into cosmic child abuse. And this is what opens the door for domestic violence. This is what opens the door to racism and all these other things. So whenever you get, you know, the old C.H. Dodd kind of stuff, well, propitiation really doesn't mean turning aside wrath, it really means cleansing. That's why Leon Morris wrote that great book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, where Morris went back through all the Old Testament illustrations of animals shedding blood, sinners' guilt being reckoned to the animal, you know, as the basis for the cross. What do these words mean in, in Greek language? What do they mean in the first century? A propitiation is the offering of a sacrifice that soaks up obliterates, turns aside wrath. And it's closer to the virgin being left on the volcano than it is to C.H. Dodd cleansing. Ironically, you have a holy God needing to pour out His wrath and anger to be just and the justifier. And so right then, 
basically says, well, you know, you've got, a, you've got this propitiation, but yeah, it's, a, it's about covenant faithfulness. It's, it's about breaking the power of sin. Nothing about the individual sinner's guilt and nothing about God's anger toward the individual sinner because of that sinner's own sin and their participation in Adam. And so Paul says this comes through faith in his blood. Um, what's more, this demonstrates at the end of the day God's righteousness, the thing Wrighton has been arguing for, and it makes God both just and the justifier of the ungodly. And so in light of the complete inability of NPP to deal with passages like that, it becomes clear that Paul can't be read through the lens of Second Temple Judaism, in which Paul is supposedly speaking of God's covenant faithfulness and not of how Christ's death affects the individual Christian, as the one who personally benefits from Christ's work through faith. And there is in this language someone, an individual, benefiting from the death of Christ through faith. And Horton's point here then stands. If this is all about who's in, not about getting in, then it excludes individual salvation. When in Romans 3, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. The salvation of an individual who through faith in Christ's blood is redeemed. Now, that individual then becomes part of the body of Christ. But you can't reduce this to just ecclesia. Um, ecclesiology. This has to be dealt with in terms of soteriology. And so, at the end of the day, the irony is, this is a clear instance of new perspective forcing a grid on the biblical text that we'd never find by looking at the text itself. Um, there, there are two debates here. And keep these distinct. I think this will help. One is, what is Second Temple Judaism really like? That's one debate. And that debate's worth having. The second debate is, what is Paul refuting? Paul is not arguing for covenantal... Paul's trying to refute covenantal nomism. It's Paul who keeps pitting grace against works, law against gospel. You can't collapse those things together and not keep the cross. And so, you know, those two passages, I think, make it crystal clear that justification is concerned with soteriology. And ecclesiology grows out of our soteriology, not vice versa. Justification is very clearly a forensic doctrine, which benefits the recipient. It gives them a new status based on something Christ did. Paul's clearly concerned then with the sinner's objective status before God based on the work of Christ. In all of these things, we're told by NPP that those things aren't found in the writings of Paul because he supposedly is very much like the Second Temple of Judaism around him, and he's basically a covenantal nomist. Now, as for justification, Sanders calls this a transfer term. And again, if you sense some exasperation on my part, you sense this on some exasperation on Dunn and Wright's part because Sanders isn't really clear here. Uh, recalling the dialogue you had Dunn and Sanders, basically uh, Dunn and Wright saying of Sanders, well, he's a historian, he's not a theologian. They sent some of this also. Calls it a transfer term, and he then goes on to say that justification is not part of the center of Paul's thought. It's an incidental thing in Paul. And so then you have a whole line of people now saying, read the book of Romans, and the heart of Romans isn't Romans 1 through 5, 
or 6 to 8. The height of Romans, the highlight of Romans is 9 through 11. That's the issue. Paul's got to explain how Jew and Gentile are supposed to get along in the church. Romans 9 to 11 is an integral part of the epistle. But the only way that section makes any sense is after Paul's to find how Jew and Gentile are both saved by the same death and righteousness of Christ. Then the discussion of Romans 9 to 11 makes perfect sense. Now, Dunn then, uh, Sanders then collapses all of this into our participation. He flattens out all these distinctions and then loses the basis for our union with Christ with the union itself. This is another debate that is ongoing in the Reformed tradition. It's an important debate to have. It comes because of the Lutheran critique of the Reformed, and that is a lot of our divines, and probably is certainly the majority of our divines, have said we look at justification in light of our union with Christ. And justification is one slice of that union with Christ through faith. Calvin speaks, tends to speak that way. Lutherans have said, all right, if that's true, then is God justifying the sinner or is God justifying the sinner in union with Christ? Is God justifying the sinner as sinner or the sinner in light of his union with Christ? Lutherans have said all along God justifies the sinner. So, Yes, we have. <laughs> all right, we are up on our second break. Need to pay some more bills here. And when we get back, we will play the balance of this fine critique of the new perspectives on Paul by Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. And uh, so stay tuned. We we have a, you know, a little bit more uh, left to play. So now if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask, 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 ask. Asked to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection? was a hoax. Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. 
but a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right. Final stretch of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith coming right up. Thanksgiving is just around the bend. Yep, I know a lot of you are thinking, you know what, they got turkey dinner and then you got turkey sandwiches and then you got tryptophan food coma, you know, it all, it's all a part of the uh, Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. Yeah, but I, anyway, I digress. Let's dive right back into the uh, the balance of uh, Kim Riddlebarger's lecture and critique of the new perspectives on Paul. Here's the balance of that lecture. And again, good critique, good stuff. And I hope that you've uh, really learned uh, through these uh, lectures from Dr. Riddlebarger, you know, you know, what are the new perspectives and uh, why are they deficient? Why is this uh, why is this something that we shouldn't embrace? And uh, ultimately, what it comes down to, it, it denies imputation, muddies justification, and is basically uh, a chameleon camouflaged form of Pelagianism, salvation via your works. So here we go. Here's uh, Dr. Riddlebarger, lasted, uh, last piece here of this uh, New Perspectives on Paul Critique. Oh, Horton is arguing, and I think he, this is a helpful clarification, that the forensic justification of sinners establishes union with Christ, as opposed to seeing justification as a slice of the whole of union. But it's, it's a debate, it's a refining, it's a tweaking, and it may or may not be helpful. It's one of those proposals you throw out to let everybody hash it out and see if it helps or if it doesn't. 
what Sanders does here is to make no distinction whatsoever between any kind of forensic work and union with Christ. It's all about being united with Christ, and the forensic is just kind of a minor thing. Paul uses a couple metaphors here and there, but it really is no big deal. Dunn disagrees with Sanders, and he sees justification as God counting those who are God's covenant partners despite their sin. Well, so far so good. But Dunn goes on to speak of justification as a kind of series of events, not something that determines once for all a believer standing before God. Dunn even goes so far, based on Romans 2.13, that justification somehow depends on a believer's covenant faithfulness leading to a final judgment. Oh, that's helpful. That's good news. You're going to stand before God in the judgment and be justified on the basis of something. Ryan, as we've seen, largely disagrees with Dunn against Sanders. I largely agrees with Dunn against Sanders, but he makes a distinction between a present justification by faith and a future justification by works on the basis of a whole life lived. And here again, this is what happens when you blur the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses, when you blur law and gospel, when you blur grace and works. Now, the other error on the other extreme is dispensationalism that sees no relationship between law and gospel, no relationship between grace and works, no, and, and pits them as, as though once grace came, there's no longer works principle. So we've got another error on the other side. So just kind of file that away. We'll actually tackle a little bit of that when we go through our eschatology coming up. But I throw that out for you as something, something to think about. This is why... When, for example, John MacArthur was reacting against Zane Hodges and Swindoll and Stanley on this lordship controversy, MacArthur said, well, the solution to saying you're justified by faith alone that regenerates you, so whether you ever continue on in faith or not, you're still, you're still saved. MacArthur said the solution to ask is to say, no, we're justified by faith and repentance. So we have tendencies to blur law and gospel going the other way as well. So I, I throw that out for you. To, we're not NPP guys, not the only guys who have done this. This has gone on, and this continues to be always at the forefront of the church. How do we distinguish law from gospel? It's just an ongoing, constant issue. Every time a minister opens his Bible to preach a sermon, he's got that same question. At least should have. What does God command? What does God give? How does this fit in the history of redemption? I mean, it's just, it's just always before us, and we can't escape it as Christians. Wright says the solution is make it justification the present by faith and the future based on works. And again, this is right out of the medieval debate between the Via Moderna, the Via Antigua. Uh, Antigua, this is, this is huge. And so for right then, faith in the former instance is a boundary marker. It's something that indicates who's numbered among the people of God. Well, in the former sense, faith is defined as covenant faithfulness. That clear distinction, thrown in a blender, the two parts, flip the switch. They're just thoroughly confused now. Now, all of the New Perspective writers agree in contending that Paul used this doctrine in a polemical way, but one which reflects the Judaism of Paul's day. 
In other words, none of the New Perspective writers will grant that Paul is refuting a particular understanding of justification, which contended that our justification before God involved faith in Jesus plus meritorious good works. Paul is refuting gnomism. He's refuting covenantal gnomism. He's not defending it. He's responding to it. And so for Sanders, justification then is Paul's way of saying that works of law, Judaism isn't Christianity. That doesn't explain the fight in the New Testament. For done and right, Paul's polemic against Judaism is framed in the context of national boundaries and ethnic badges, dietary laws, circumcision, keeping kosher, diet, feast days, all that kind of stuff. And for them, Paul's refuting Jewish exclusivism. Paul is saying Gentiles are in too. Jews can't eliminate them. They're on the basis of faith just as Jews are. Dunn argues that Paul is stating the principles of true Judaism, which is not Pelagian, but grounded in covenant gnomism, which Paul's not. Wright believes that Paul is affirming how Israel's exile, how the, how the, the plight is solved by the coming of Christ. So it's solution to plight again. None of these writers believe that imputation has anything to do with Christ's righteousness being imputed to the believer. And all of these men leave us to the ground of justification in the believer's covenant faithfulness, which on closer examination becomes something very much like infused righteousness, transforming believers. It comes right down to semi-Pelagianism at best. So for Paul, however... Christ's righteousness, not God's covenant faithfulness, nor the believer's covenant faithfulness, is the ground of justification. Passage you've already read. For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Here, righteousness is reckoned to us. It's not infused into us. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul writes, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Notice that Christ became to us righteousness. Given the fact that Paul's spoken here of our wisdom from God, that's Christ. There's no problem here then. We speak of Christ as our righteousness, a righteousness which comes to us from God. Romans 4, 5 to 6, another very critical text. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, in that text, Paul clearly speaks of righteousness being reckoned to us, credited to us through faith. And notice that this reckoning is completely set apart from any activity on our part. That's the critical point. The ungodly, the wicked, is credited as righteous. And that's not only the forgiveness of sin. Their sin is not imputed to them or not held against them. They're now positively regarded as righteous. And the same thing happens in Romans 5, 18 to 19, where Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. The principle here is the two federal heads, all those represented in Adam, universal, all those represented in Christ, the elect. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. There we have the contrast laid out between 
sin and salvation between guilt and grace. Just as clearly as we can. And so when Paul says that it's through the obedience of Christ, the many are made righteous, he's affirming two of the imputations that New Testament writers just kind of gloss over, which is, I think, a rather fundamental point in Paul. If you can't deal with those imputation passages, then you're not going to make sense of any of the rest of Paul, I would argue. In this case, Paul teaches that the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to all of his descendants, but he also teaches that Christ's righteousness is imputed or reckoned to all those who believe in Jesus. And then finally, this is a really critical passage. In Romans 5, 1, Paul writes, Therefore, Before he goes on to that next point, real quick, that's, the, that's kind of the kicker in the whole thing. Adam's sin is imputed to us as if we're the ones who committed it. You know, in Adam, we all sin. We all become sinners. So Adam's sin is imputed to us. Why can't Christ's righteousness be imputed to us? And that's exactly what the, the text he's referring to argues that Adam's sin is imputed to us, and in, by faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's so clearly taught in the text, it's a one-for-one correlation between the old Adam and the new Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam, or the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Ugh, yeah, these new perspective guys don't have an adequate answer for that issue. For since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanders tells us that justification is transformation, while Wright and Dunn tell us that justification is a series of declarations related to both God's and the believer's covenant faithfulness. Paul, on the other hand, speaks of justification as a one-time act that secures the believer's peace before God, which establishes our union with Christ. Now, I know we've gone over a lot of these texts very, very quickly, and... We've done a very shallow and short survey. Um, please take time to look at the responses from Venema in the gospel of, of uh, acceptance of, of free grace of the gospel, acceptance in Christ, uh, Piper's book where he deals with right. Look at Horton's Covenant and Salvation. Uh, Guy Waters has a good book. Sam Kim's book is outstanding. Mark Seifert's got a couple of things. Stephen Westerholm's book on Paul. All of these. It becomes clear then that New Perspective on all of these texts, falls very short in its interpretation of Paul on the gospel. And so, you know, I'm right back to where we started. At the end of the day, the traditional view is received from the hands of Luther and Lutheran Orthodoxy and on down to the Reformed tradition, including Calvin and the so-called federal theology. I think all of that makes better sense of Paul than do Sanders done and right. Paul is clearly concerned with the salvation of individual sinners. Although, unlike the fundamentalists who speak of salvation in individual terms, Paul sees the salvation of sinners as taking place within the context of the covenant of grace in which God is saving his people. And so this means that New Perspective ultimately fails as a comprehensive way to read Paul more effectively. Again, the test here is how well does the theory of interpretation enable us to explain Paul with the least amount of tweaking. You know, it's the old Procrustean bed thing. If our Procrustean bed leaves most of Paul unexplained, the grid's probably wrong. If our grid explains most of Paul with a few things on the edge, maybe not clear, that grid makes a whole lot more sense. And I kind of think that's where we are with Luther. I think the Reformed have cleaned up some of the... the 
Luther thing. Luther himself basically made the point that, look, I'm going to mark the trees. Melanchthon's going to come through with an axe and cut them down. Um, and we have that in Luther. Calvin also, a very good systematizer and synthesizer. So I think the clearly um, classical tradition, traditional Protestant positions, they call it, makes more sense. And so the good thing in New Perspective is they do take the epistles of Paul and the historical context for them seriously, which is unlike the generations of critical scholars preceding them, especially the Tübingen School, um, Bauer and others. New Perspective, at the end of the day, largely reflects the concerns of the prior generation theological liberals. They're concerned with ecumenism and moralism. Now, I'm the first to say we on the Reform side aren't very good at ecumenism. We don't like anybody. We don't want to be with anybody else. Um, probably not the best approach toward uh, our brothers and sisters outside. Okay, granted, we fess up. Um, but I also think you can want to make peace with people with whom there can be no peace. And there's a tendency to sacrifice the sharp edges, to, to set, round them off, to sand them down, so that Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics and the Church of England can all be one big happy family. And I think that impulse to be one is good. I also think we can't be one at the expense of truth. And those edges have to be made to fit. And just why is it that every time Protestants sit down to talk to Catholics about union, our position ends up being closer to Rome than Rome is to ours. Every time we lose that fight, when are we going to learn? Rome always wins that. Don't even try anymore. The other thing I think we see that reflects old guard liberalism here is that Christianity is not the only true religion. Although writes better about this, certainly, than Dunn and Sanders. But Christianity stands in substantial continuity with Judaism. Everyone is so terrified of being called an anti-Semite that they won't say Jews are lost. Now, we have to say, after the Holocaust in Lutheran Germany, that yes, we understand why Jews are nervous, why they think we have ill for them. We have to acknowledge that. I think Protestants, historic Protestants, have to defend Jews when they're persecuted we have to be the first to come to their rescue we have to reach out to them and witness to them in very very tangible ways because of our, our bad legacy but the worst thing we can do to them is not tell them the truth about their eternal state and that requires we tell them that Jesus is their Messiah so in principle yeah we have, we, we have to acknowledge and the pink elephant in the room is the holocaust we just can't pretend it didn't happen. And yet, neither can we not, in love, tell our Jewish friends the truth about Christ. The other thing missing in New Perspective, and it's just the more you read it, the more it, it, it's not what's there, it's what isn't there. There's no emphasis here on a holy God. There's no emphasis here on the gravity of our sin. There's very little here about Christ's vicarious sacrifices, a penal substitution. It, it just isn't found there. We don't read of Christ's active and passive obedience. We don't read, of course, of the imputation of Adam's sin and Christ's righteousness because this isn't concerned with individual salvation. We've lost the very carefully formed Reformation formulations of how faith relates to works. I mean, the Reformers can explain. A novice Reformed Christian can explain to a Catholic theologian 
why Romans 4 and James 2 don't contradict each other. We've thought about this stuff. And yet, Luther got it wrong, we're told. And that has to be thrown out. For all of these reasons, from part 1 and 2, New Perspective fails then as a comprehensive interpretation of Paul. And while it helps us focus on the Jew-Gentile issue, which is great, New Perspective doesn't allow Paul to speak as the apostle to the Gentiles. It makes Paul into a defender of covenant nomism when Paul is trying to refute covenant nomism. And so at the end of the day, New Perspective cannot explain at all the Christian polemic against the Judaizers or even the Gentile antinomians. And, you know, you start to read Calvin's stuff again on this. You read Owen on this. You go back and look at a Turretin. You go back and look at, say, a Franz Pieper, J.T. Mueller. You go look at these classic Reformed dogmaticians, Lutheran dogmaticians, and they make far more sense out of Paul than does New Perspective. And so I think New Perspective is, is a step backwards as opposed to a step forward. Uh, we have gone over, we have time for maybe one or two questions. So if you have any questions, go ahead. Keep them short because we're about at our tape limit there. Get from the mic. The, uh, the whole union union with Christ question, uh, I'm thinking now, especially the discussion going on between Westminster East and West, we have some dis, uh, disagreements in there, and I know it's not a major thing, but am I hearing you right? Is it that we, we still kind of see it as part of the ordo? Uh, we would say from the Western position, if, if we will, that justification uh, comes first, so to speak, and then union, or I know other dogmaticians talk about union as, as kind yeah, of... That's, that's it's, the it's yeah, that's the debate. That's the debate. Yeah, it does, does the forensic status of a believer establish his union with Christ? That's how I read it, the debate. Or do we understand justification as part of our union with Christ? And I think that's a real healthy discussion. Um, some have accused Horton, for example, of being a Lutheran. Um, I, I don't think Mike is reading Lutheran divines and thinking, oh, I'm going to be head this way. I think I can tell you I have heard that question put to Mike by a number of Lutheran theologians through the years. And I think our tradition would benefit greatly from further dialogue because the Lutheran critique of of our tradition helps us sharpen our position and clarify some of these things. So that's how I see it. And at the end of the day, the proposal stands and it helps improve things fine. If it doesn't, well, it'll go the way of all other such proposals that didn't work. Immediate, immediate imputation, for example. You know, there are things like that where you, you, you try something to, and it ends up making, okay, let, let the debate begin and we'll see iron sharpens iron and church will hash it out. Yeah. Okay. Come to the mic and ask your question. All right. Um, first of all, I, I agree with the basic position that you presented tonight. Paul is actually using a form of covenantal nomism rather than but assuming the basic agreement with what you're saying, um, it still remains to explain uh, certain scriptural passages that do emphasize works and obedience to the will of God. So I'm just going to read a couple right. of passages quickly and then ask for your understanding. Right. 
this sheep and goats passage that Jesus uh, is uh, presenting in Matthew uh, 26, when the Son of Man, in his glory and all the angels with him, come, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. The nations will be gathered, and I'm going to paraphrase, he will separate um, them as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Uh, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, etc. Um, and then the others, um, he will uh, not invite in. They will right. actually receive eternal punishment. The reason those who uh, are received by him into eternal glory with him is this. Um, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, etc. Right. And the lack of doing that is the reason right. why the other half of the human race gets excluded. All right, now let me quickly, um, just one more passage. Turn to Romans 8, 8.12. Uh, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, for it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Okay. okay. So, we still need to explain this passage as part of okay. we need to obey. Right. Great, great questions. Let me take the, the second one first, since we're talking about Paul and, and not the Gospels per se. Romans 8, most Reformed commentators will argue, is a contrast between those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the Spirit. Those who walk in the flesh are non-Christians. Those who walk in the Spirit are Christians. This is not, as higher life teachers will tell you, an option for a Christian to walk after the flesh or walk after the Spirit. This is a contrast between Christians and non-Christians. So, those who are in Christ, who have been transferred from the realm of Adam and sin and death, for whom the law condemns them and who are held sway by the power of sin, once they're in Christ, the law no longer condemns them, they're no longer bound to the power of sin, and they come alive to the commandments. So the obedience spoken of there is a fruit of their justification. So the question at the end of the day is, must there be good works present for a person to stand before God in the judgment? The answer to that is absolutely. The question is, are those good works the ground of their justification? And the answer to that is no. So it's Christ's perfect obedience. It's the ground of our justification. Once we have been justified... That faith that justifies us also begins the lifetime process of sanctification. And in Romans 8, it's a contrast between uh, spirit and pneuma and sarks and flesh. It's a contrast between two, two categories, what we are in Adam versus what we are in Christ. And those who are in Christ will demonstrate the conduct mentioned in Romans chapter 8. Pretty much the same thing's true of Matthew 25. Um, notice that you can even go back farther than the Sermon on the Mount. I think Meredith Klein offers this a very helpful way to, to just look at this in terms of redemptive history. The parables in Matthew are primarily Jesus' explanation 
as to why Israel doesn't believe the gospel. That, that the parables tell Israel's story and show why Israel's in the fix that it's in at the time that the Messiah has come. So that's why John the Baptist is the one who comes and warns Israel. John's the last guy to say to Israel, you better repent because he's coming. Jesus doesn't come and announce to Israel, um, judgment's coming, you better get saved. Jesus comes and dispenses covenant blessings and covenant curses. John told us he was coming. When Jesus comes, he actually does it. So look at a passage like the Sermon on the Mount, which will help answer Matthew 25. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are. He doesn't there speak in the imperative voice. He's using the indicative voice. He comes and dispenses blessings on the poor, blessings on the meek. You have heard it said, but I say to you, the same kind of thing I think holds in a passage like Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has already spoken of those who have received God's blessing. They now manifest that in their conduct. So it isn't in Matthew 25 the case that if you do this, then you get that. It's a case because you are this, you will do that. And it's the same for James 2. It's the same for all those passages. And, and that's what I'm getting at when I say, you know, Reformation theologians... <laughs> Got to pause. It's exactly right. When it comes to sanctification, you do what you do because you are what you are. You are a new creation in Christ. Uh, you know, faith without works is dead, but works are not what make you alive in Christ. They are the fruit, the natural thing that occurs to somebody, you know, to somebody who has been regenerated. Plain and simple. From the time of the early days of the Reformation on up into the age of, of rationalism, when, when we finally gave up trying, every one of our divines has asked that exact same question. And come up with pretty much the same answer. Carefully balanced, making sense of the works principle, making sense of the contrast between grace and works, looking at the demands placed upon us by the moral law, explaining why we as Gentiles are no longer bound by the Mosaic covenant. You know, all of those things. So every one of those passages like that make perfect sense. They flow out of our justification. The person who's justified will demonstrate good works as a fruit of faith, as a fruit of their standing before God, not as the ground of their justification. So I think just pastorally, you've got the theological argument, pastorally, how many bruised reeds and smoldering wicks have been snuffed out by somebody saying, I didn't see you clothe the hungry or feed the naked? Are those passages there to do that to us? Or are they there to tell us that believers in Jesus will manifest a certain kind of conduct? So you've got to be real careful with those texts. And I think our, our, our theologians have pretty much given the same kinds of answers. Some of the details, of course, we differ in certain passages, but the, the big picture is pretty much the same. That what motivates somebody to feed the hungry and clothe the, the naked and to take care of the poor isn't the command to do it. It's that you've received the blessing of the Father, now do this. Um, in the Heidelberg Catechism, for example, question 65, where does faith come from? From hearing the gospel and confirmed by the sacraments. At least on the, on the continental side of things, we've said that the reason why Christians desire 
to manifest that kind of conduct is because of what God has already done for them in Christ. As opposed to saying, you have to do these things to earn God's favor. We, we, we would just denounce that. So, again, I, I just would, would say that the Reformers have, have asked all of those questions, and I think their solution is, is better than, than Wright and Sanders. Not that they're perfect, not that there isn't more tweaking to do, not that Dunn and Wright and Sanders can't show us, and indeed they have shown us, I think, places where we need to tweak and think. I think the Reformed dogma with the Lutherans is another place where maybe the Lutherans have answered that question better than we have. Maybe they haven't. Well, it's... Of course we have. <laughs> Sorry. Try and figure it out and see where it goes. It's not, it, for, first of all, it's extra confessional. It's within the confessions. It's not a matter of changing the confessions. It's some tweaking. Let's tweak and see if it helps. If it doesn't, we'll go back to the standard formulations. Perspectives. On- all right. So that was uh, uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger, pastor at, at uh, Christ Reformed Lutheran, Ch- uh, not Lutheran, Christ Reformed Church in uh, Anaheim, California, and his critique of the new perspectives on Paul. I understand this was a very heady subject. And, uh, well, you got to do that from time to time. You got to tackle heady subjects in a heady way, you know, because uh, the argument itself is heady. And the thing is, is that there are people who are buying into this new perspective stuff and uh, may, as a result of it, be shipwrecking their faith and uh, relying upon their works for their justification. No bueno, as we uh, they say in Spanish lingo. So, all right, we are rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if you find the what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, as well as overall Pirate Christian Radio as a whole, uh, then uh, really consider strongly, uh, to the point of actually taking action, uh, joining our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, and uh, and help us to pay our bills so that we can continue to bring this important ministry and apologetics and theological, biblical, Christ-centered outreach to you as well as to other people. You can do so by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and uh, click on uh, the Join Our Crew button. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and when you do sign up, you will receive an email uh, that uh, will give you access to our secret pirate Christian radio cove, which is a growing treasure trove of plundered theological resources designed to help you go deeper into God's word, sound biblical uh, doctrine and theology, and good Christian uh, Christ-centered apologetics. So you don't want to miss out on that. It's a fine resource. And again, the way you do it, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on Join Our Crew. And of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount of money, uh, that you can do so by uh, clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we're at the end of another broadcasting week, and I want to thank you for all the hard work that you do in uh, serving your neighbor in the vocation that God has put you in as a godly service that you do, whether it's uh, cleaning snotty noses, changing diapers, commuting uh, in traffic every day to a cubicle, or uh, picking up trash or working as a doctor or a politician or anything like that. All of these are, are ways in which you serve your neighbor and show your love for your neighbor and in, in the vocation that God has put you into. So again, thank you very much for the hard work that you do. And I want to wish you all a uh, a great weekend. And, of course, if you'd like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can uh, ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Uh, Pirate Christian is the name you're looking for there. 
Uh, got some good stuff already lined up for next week's program, so you don't want to miss those either. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross, even for a sinner as wretched as you. Amen.